From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, June 5th. I'm Marco Werman. A drone strike kills al-Qaeda's second-in-command. A former CIA analyst says it's a big loss for the terrorist organization. Because of his scholarship, because of his intellect, um, and because of his ability to hold the movement together in many ways, he cannot be replaced. And later, how ExxonMobil does business in West Africa. Employees that go into the ExxonMobil compound for 30-day shifts and are not allowed to leave uh, during that time. The African employees I met referred to it as Guantanamo uh, with tongue-in-cheek. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The United States takes a lot of grief from Pakistan over drone strikes. But the news today out of Pakistan shows why U.S. officials believe those strikes are still worth the trouble. Officials say a U.S. drone strike in Waziristan has killed al-Qaeda's second-in-command. Abu Yahya al-Libi was also considered a top strategist for the terrorist group. The White House calls his death a major blow against al-Qaeda. Jarrett Brackman is a former CIA analyst. He says al-Libi had been famous in militant circles ever since he escaped from the U.S. jail in Bagram, Afghanistan in 2005. Well, it's a a winding and almost Hollywood-like story. Uh, Abu Yahya Libby and three of his colleagues had been planning for for several months, but basically they, you know, they pick a bunch of locks and they climb under fences and they take off their their shirts in order to look like local Afghan contractors and go right past U.S. guards. I mean, it's this wild, uh, you know, story. And after running and escaping um, detection for for several days, they link back up with the Taliban, who then bring them back to Al Qaeda. And what did that escape do for uh, Al Libby's credentials? I mean, uh, should have been pretty good. What was he already in Al Qaeda at that point? Well, no, he he hasn't. And it's you know, Abu Yahya Libby is one of the most complex figures within Al Qaeda because he had already established his career working with a, a militant group known as the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, and he was you know you could say one of their highest ranking uh, religious officials within the organization. So although he didn't hit our radar until after he escaped in 2005, he was a very known quantity within the, the broader jihadist world. But it gave him street cred. This escape from you know one of the, the most closely guarded American prisons, uh, it, it catapulted him onto the, uh, into the upper echelons of, of the jihadi elite. Uh, but it was still several months before he would decide to officially align himself with al-Qaeda. So describe al-Libi kind of as a figure. How is he regarded by the al-Qaeda rank and file? And when you see him in those videos, what do you see? What is he like? Well, you know, I always say that that people revere uh, al-Qaeda's current emir, Ayman al-Zawahiri, because he's been in it for so long. But when they look at Abu Yahya, they love him. He's a he's a populist. He's uh, he, I mean, he's really the general who's down there with the troops, eating with them, patting them on the back. I mean, in every video where he's speaking to al-Qaeda rank and file, uh, they line up afterwards to hug him, to embrace him. It's uh, it's a very different 
understanding of what an al-Qaeda leader is. That, that, that kind of charisma sounds a lot like some of the accounts I've read of Osama bin Laden, though. Yeah, you know, I call Abu Yahya the upgrade model uh, in the sense that he actually had uh, real religious credentials. Um, he, was, he was younger, far more savvy uh, in terms of how he understood the media. And, and his writings were everything bin Laden wished he could have produced but wasn't probably smart enough to do. So very much he was, he was poised to be – I called him the next bin Laden. I mean upgrade model, that's complimentary but it also implies uh, something quite eerie too. It is. And you know, I had the chance to interview his, his older brother in a Libyan prison several years ago and I got a very detailed sense for the, the personality and I saw the charisma uh, of, you know, firsthand of his older brother and I think it's the same kind that, his, that Abu Yahya had. And it, it occurred to me that Abu Yahya never really had, had drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak, of, of al-Qaeda. It was more of a pragmatic decision um, to use the organization to advance his own agenda, which was far bigger than anything al-Qaeda wanted to do. Just how important was he and can he quickly be replaced? I don't think that uh, al-Qaeda can recover from this loss. To me, if if Ayman al-Zawahiri, the, the current head of al-Qaeda, and, and Abu Yahya are taken out, um, the senior leadership is is done. The back is broken. And so – uh, you know, because Abu Yahya, because of his scholarship, because of his intellect, um, and because of his ability to to hold the the movement together in many ways, um, he cannot be replaced. Jared Brockman, former CIA analyst, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much. In Europe, the financial crisis is still front and center, and the White House is increasingly concerned about the negative effect on a struggling American economy. That was the subject of a G7 emergency conference call today. Finance officials representing the U.S. and other top industrialized nations discussed what to do next. Several European nations are struggling with the double whammy of high debt and economic slowdown. But there's no consensus on whether the cure involves more austerity or more stimulus. Financier George Soros is warning that Europe has three months to get its house in order or the euro currency could be in real peril. How much peril is a question I put to the world's Clark Boyd in Brussels. Well, Marco, as I heard one commentator here say, never underestimate the European leader's ability to, to kick the ball down the road another couple of months to, to settle things just enough and, and do just the least amount possible to try to keep this at bay. I think it's, I think it's really hard to say uh, whether the euro is going to be around in three months or whether it'll be a country like Greece uh, that has to leave or whether a country like uh, you know Germany might decide to leave. But I think three months is, is a pretty short, short span. Uh, this has been going on for two years now, and I don't see it ending in three months. I got to say, Clark, as an American, it's kind of hard to get my head around the idea that all these countries can have the same currency, but it, it, somehow it's unequal. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've been struggling to understand that, too, in the time I've been here. And, and I, 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 came across a, uh, I came across a clip recently from Hugh Pill, who was with Goldman Sachs in Britain. And, and this is him kind of, you know, setting it out for an American audience, kind of comparing the situation here in Europe to the situation in the United States. People question whether the euro area is going to stick together and ultimately whether a euro sitting in a Greek bank, for example, is going to be the same uh, and stay the same as a euro sitting in a German bank. So the question is, why don't people in the United States begin to worry about whether the dollar they have residing in their bank account in San Francisco 
is the same as a dollar that's residing in New York or Dallas or Houston. And essentially, Marco, uh, Hugh Pill's answer to that is the United States has a level of political, fiscal, and monetary integration that the European Union just doesn't have to that same extent. What is the solution or solutions here? Well, there are a number of solutions being floated. One of the most popular right now being put forward by countries like Spain and France is to go to something called euro bonds, which would be a Europe-wide bond that would more evenly distribute uh, the debt moving forward between the peripheral nations and, and, the, uh, and the core countries like, uh, like Germany and Holland. So that's one solution that's being floated. Now, Germany has an alternative plan. What Germany would like to do instead, at least this is the scuttlebutt, is that Germany would like to put forward a plan that would pool the existing debt. And we're talking sort of, sort of like $3 trillion or yeah, more. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of money. Right? I mean, it's, it's a lot of money. But they would, it would pool the existing debt and then try to restructure it so that Europe could, pay, you know, so that Europe as a whole, the eurozone as a whole, could pay that off over twenty-five years. So that at least they would see an end date to that, and and that's the that that supposedly is the plan that Germany wants to float. But, well, they might see kind of light at the end of the tunnel. But why why would Germany hand over essentially a new credit card in its own name to its spendthrift cousins? What do they want in return? Well, Marco, you're asking exactly the question that the German taxpayers are asking. <laughs> I mean, that's what they say. Why? Why should we keep? Uh, why should we keep footing the bill for you know what they see as as other people's uh, bad spending habits? Essentially, uh, I think you know w- what Germany would want out of a, a longer term eurobond scenario would be you know, uh, a lot of power within that to decide you know how the money is going to get paid back. They would definitely want some assurances that that the nations that got Europe into this crisis in the first place would, you know, really live up and honor their debts, even within a eurobond system. The world's Clark Boyd in Brussels. Thank you. You're welcome, Marco. Many Europeans will have a welcome distraction from their financial woes later this week when the Euro 2012 soccer tournament gets underway. And just in time for that, soccer's governing body is issuing a warning. FIFA says many top players are putting their health at risk by abusing painkillers. See, a FIFA study found that almost 40% of players at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa were taking painkillers before every match. That can be dangerous, as BBC science correspondent Matt McGraw told me. If you're taking painkillers in a regular situation, it may be okay. But if you're taking painkillers and you're exercising very hard, you're putting an awful lot of pressure on your kidneys. Some of these painkillers, there's non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, they stem the blood flow to the kidneys. So if your kidneys are working really hard and you're cutting down the amount of blood that's going there, it can be very damaging. And over a period of time, it can be something that you may not even be aware of because of the analgesic effects of these drugs. So they're worried that players are doing themselves long-term damage in soccer over a number of years if they're continuing to take uh, these type of medications. And we, we looked at one case of uh, Ivan Klasnic. He's a, a Croatian soccer player. Uh, he plays in the Premiership in the UK. And he lost a kidney in 2007. And he's suing his club in Germany because he believes that they continued to give him painkillers when he had a problem with his kidney. The club defend themselves. They say, no, this is a genetic problem. And that case is still before the courts. But it's indicative of the way that things are going and the way that things that people are thinking about this situation is that, you know, people are, are having these sorts of health problems. Now, there's a, a case here in the U.S. Uh, related to uh, 12 former NFL players who uh, say medication masked uh, the pain of head injuries. They were using something called uh, Toradol. Yeah, that's right. They were using a medication that's been widely used in a variety of different situations, an anti-inflammatory compound called Toradol. 
their argument is that the players were given this um, medication often before games, before they incurred any injury, so that they were lined up, and as one player called it, a cattle call, where they were lined up and given a shot one after the other, and then they went out and suffered injuries in the games, didn't feel them as badly as if they hadn't had the medication, and then, uh, in their view, suffered greater damage to their heads as a result. I mean, it seems like it's going to be a really tough problem to crack. You know, players want to play, and if they're not playing, that means somebody else is playing in their stead. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, FIFA and other bodies that organise international sports are, are throwing their hands up a little bit here in the air and saying there's nothing we can do because they feel that there isn't, particularly with over-the-counter medications. They feel they have more control and they, they think that with greater awareness um, they can deal better with uh, prescription medications. But even then, you know, resourceful players can go about and get medications in, in a variety of different ways. So there's there's a great deal of concern. They do hold their hands up. They say, we're not sure what we can do. We can't ban the medications. We can't ban the players. We, we can't treat it like a doping situation because we don't feel that it is. Mm. But on the other hand, you know, the, 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 the evidence is that players are taking more of the medications and the long-term consequences for their health and for their careers are, are incalculable at this point. And do you think uh, coming up to the next uh, World Cup, we're going to be hearing a lot more about this? I think it's it's very much part of the game, the soccer game and other games at this moment in time. And, and I, I think therefore we will. I think there's a, there is a big worry and it's in really undiscovered in some respects is what's happening at underage levels. And, and FIFA are very concerned about this. At the under 17 levels, they were finding 20% of players taking pain medication before every game. That's very high in their view and they're very concerned about that. So I, I think they, all they can say is education. All they can say is awareness. They can't put any uh, sanction in place. And the nature of the game being what it is, the competitive nature of competitions where you want your best players for the duration of the competition means that it is likely to stay with this. And um, there will be consequences down the line in terms of long-term impacts on health. BBC Science correspondent Matt McGraw describing the dangers of painkiller abuse by soccer players and other athletes. You can read more about the FIFA report at theworld.org. Still on the program, do ExxonMobil shareholders dictate the company's business in Africa on PRI? The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The name Baja California evokes images of long, empty beaches and coastal waters plied by laid-back surfers and sea kayakers. But in the 1990s, that off-the-map allure began drawing wealthy Americans and big-time developers. Baja's pristine shores began to give way to beachfront high-rises and luxury resorts. Then, in 2008, the region's development bubble burst. And since then, environmentalists have seized a rare opportunity to protect some of Baja's threatened landscapes. Jill Replogel has a story. I'm standing in the middle of what was supposed to be the start of a huge development project in Baja, California. It's a marina, or it was a marina, that's now completely filled with sand. And it's just about all that's left in this tiny fishing village of Santa Rosalita of a dream of the Mexican government. It was a grand plan for a string of marinas along the coast of Baja California and the Sea of Cortez called the Escalera Nautica, or nautical staircase. But instead of bustling docks and a thriving new commercial center, the only thing stirring here on a recent evening are dirt bikers, a few surfers, and the wind. 
The failed nautical staircase has become a poster child for overambitious development dreams in Baja California. It was planned with the expectation that the real estate was, was going to continue growing. That's Saul Alarcón of the Mexican environmental group Terra Peninsular. So we'd say, well, let's put some marinas in key places because we are developing the entire coast. So eventually we'll have thousands of people with yachts coming to Baja California. During the pre-2008 real estate boom, many developers and Americans in search of a plot of paradise invested in this part of Mexico with its miles and miles of then-unspoiled, breathtaking coastline. The crash of 2008 put many of those projects on ice. That was bad news for developers, but... Obviously, the downturn in the economy has been a positive boon for the Baja natural resources. Serge Dedina heads Wild Coast, a conservation organization with offices in the U.S. and Mexico. When the Baja boom was happening, literally it seemed like conservationists were fighting all kinds of projects, from marina development projects, high-rise development projects, and mega resorts. But now, conservation groups have been able to turn the tables a bit. They've been buying up discounted coastal land from speculators. They're establishing conservation easements on private land. And they're working with the Mexican government to form new protected areas. We've been able to really proactively preserve a lot of world-class uh, coastal biodiversity areas. That, they're areas where gray whales go and where you see whale sharks. So that's really exciting. Baja's warm lagoons are crucial breeding and birthing areas for thousands of migrating gray whales. The area is also vital habitat for other animals. Hundreds of willets feed in the mudflats of San Quintin Bay on Baja's Pacific coast. The bay is home to tens of thousands of shorebirds and migratory waterfowl. Saul Alarcón from Terra Peninsular. It's one of the last wetlands in North America with... I would say 80, 90 percent of the habitat is still in good shape. The local government had hoped to turn part of this bay into a marina. A resort and golf course were also in the works. But now Alarcón's organization is working with the Mexican government to turn nearly 300,000 acres here into a biosphere reserve. It's also bought up a nearby area of now rare coastal sage scrub. And it's helping local farmers establish low-impact agricultural practices. Alarcón says such efforts are protecting internationally important resources. You have environment, habitats, ecosystems that basically have disappeared in the rest of North America. And the real estate bust has given conservationists a new window of opportunity to save some of them. Of course, the bust also means some dashed hopes for economic development. Back in Santa Rosalita, locals say the marina project would have brought welcome jobs and income. And before it failed, it did bring some benefits. Sí, el beneficio para nosotros fue la carretera y la luz. Local leader Javier McClish says the project brought a new road and electricity. Eso fue el beneficio y lo demás, pues no. Lo demás afectado en cierta forma. But McClish says otherwise, the project has hurt the town. He says it caused beach erosion that has made life more difficult for local fishermen and even forced some residents to abandon their homes. Meanwhile, it's likely that the quiet that's returned to places like Santa Rosalita is just a lull in the action, and that conservationists like Saul Alarcón will still have to scramble to protect more land. Unfortunately, what happens in places like Baja California, people who are not from Baja California, they think that it's empty land. And it has been always this case.
Activists say new development plans are again popping up along the peninsula. And Alarcón says it's not just tourism and retirement homes anymore. Mining and energy projects. It is now the next rush. For The World, I'm Jill Replogel, Baja California. From tourism and mining in Mexico, let's turn to the air in Beijing. The air there and in other booming Chinese cities is notoriously dirty. On bad days, cars, factories, and power plants there can make breathing downright dangerous. But locals looking for reliable information on air quality often ignore their own government and turn to the U.S. embassy and consulates instead. On days when Chinese official figures say the pollution is mild or acceptable, U.S. officials are often issuing health warnings on Twitter. This Beijing resident who didn't want to be named told the BBC that people have come to rely on the American figures. People in Beijing, they don't trust the official figures of the air pollution because you can't trust one that lies to you every day. And actually, between the two figures, it's a very big gap. Well, if the Chinese government gets its way, that gap between the Chinese and U.S. figures will disappear. But not because it plans to improve its monitoring. No, instead, a top Chinese official told foreign embassies today to stop publishing their own air pollution readings. China's deputy environment minister said it was against diplomatic conventions for foreign missions to release their own data. The U.S. says its figures are an unofficial resource for the health of its own staffers. China's foreign ministry says that's fine, but the U.S. figures should not be released to the public. Now we shift over to the northern coast of South America for today's GeoQuiz. Venezuela is on our radar. The country's got plenty of room for beach chairs. Its 1,700-mile-long coastline looks out on the tropical waters of the Caribbean and the big blue Atlantic. There are 28 million-plus Venezuelans spread out across 23 states. One is Barinas. You can find this western state on the map of Venezuela that we posted at theworld.org. And that brings us to the quiz. Can you name the city in the state of Barinas that Venezuelan president Hugo Chavez calls home? It's a town where farmers toil in tobacco and sugarcane fields and kick back with the sound of musica llanera. We'll pay a visit to Chavez's hometown when we return with the answer later in the show. Marco Werman, the ship, formerly known as the Exxon Valdez, nears the end of its long controversial journey. All we know is that it's somewhere out beyond the 12-mile zone of India. Um, It has not been allowed into the waters until the legal limbo is settled. Catching up with the Exxon Valdez, ahead on the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. One company sits at the very top of the list of Fortune 500 companies, ExxonMobil. Its profits last year tallied $40 billion, more than the gross domestic product of many countries. And the company's reach is global. In the new book, Private Empire, ExxonMobil, and American Power, author Steve Cole examines the oil giant's operations around the world. We're going to focus on one country in West Africa, Chad. Cole describes ExxonMobil's presence in Chad as a sort of throwback to Africa's colonial period. 550 different installations, a fenced uh, main operating headquarters, shacks around the edge of the fence with prostitutes and beer sellers and market makers of different types, employees that go into the ExxonMobil compound for 30-day shifts and are not allowed to leave uh, during that time. The African employees I met referred to it as Guantanamo uh, with tongue-in-cheek. And, of course, they make good salaries and they enjoy a relative life of privilege compared to many other Chadians in the South. But the comparison to the 19th century, I think, is apt in part because of the just outsized influence that ExxonMobil has in a place like Chad. Of course, a very poor country, 181st out of 187 in the Human Development Index, the global table of quality of life indicators, life expectancy still under 50 years in Chad. And yet ExxonMobil is delivering to the authoritarian government led by Idris Deby uh, in the mid-2000s roughly $750 million a year Mm. in taxes and royalties. That compares, for example, to U.S. aid in Chad of maybe $10 all in. So if you're Idris Deby and you look across the capital and you see the U.S. embassy on the one hand and the ExxonMobil country representative office on the other, it's obvious which one represents American power in your country. I mean, the point you make with Chad is that uh, ExxonMobil thought it might be able to ensure that the country's oil revenues would somehow benefit the population. But as you pointed out, it didn't. Chad is still at the bottom of the index uh, on indicators. Why did that not happen? Well, it was an unusual uh, gamble by ExxonMobil. Normally, they just keep their heads down and try not to get involved in politics or social experiments. But here was a case where the only way they could develop the oil in landlocked Chad was if the World Bank and other governments uh, on the board of the World Bank got involved in what was a grand experiment to try to beat the resource curse, which is the pattern in which poor countries that lead their development with resources uh, and mining and oil generally end up no better off except for their elites getting Swiss bank accounts. And the way they were going to beat the resource curse was to develop this unusual compact in which Chad's government agreed to direct a big chunk of the oil revenue they received to social spending, health, education, infrastructure. But five, six years into the project, Idris Deby decided that he needed guns more. And at that point, ExxonMobil's tax and royalty payments were so gargantuan that he could afford just to buy his way out of the compact. Mm. And so the whole experiment collapsed. The Bush administration confronted him. Uh, The World Bank, led by former Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz, tried to prevent the deal from collapsing. But ExxonMobil's sort of royalty payments and tax payments were just so great that it overwhelmed this kind of paper agreement to do better. I'm wondering, though, are there any examples of African governments that benefited from ExxonMobil oil production and then did progress democratically? No, not yet. The totality of ExxonMobil's presence in West Africa, I'm afraid, has been destabilizing, especially in these weakest of countries, Chad, Equatorial Guinea. The prize of oil production makes 
the presidential palace a kind of bank that's just waiting to be robbed by coup makers or guerrilla forces, it induces subversion because if you can capture the presidential palace, the next morning you've got a Swiss bank account with $30 million in it. So what more responsible role could Exxon play, do you think? They have to go beyond the standard parameters of corporate responsibility in countries that are as poor as these. They define their charity in these countries narrowly. They make some useful contributions to malaria eradication, health infrastructure, but they very adamantly refuse to be engaged on anything that smacks of nation building, investing in the country's educational system, coercing the government to improve its performance on all of these social indicators. They fear that if they become too active, they will alienate the very dictators on whom they depend for their contracts. But this is an unholy bargain. And I think in the world we're moving into, it's just not sustainable. Corporations are not going to be able to persist without resistance from both local citizens and also global human rights organizations and others. What more specifically do you think they could be doing in Chad? I think that they could be leaders of the revival of the goals that were inscribed in the World Bank's original compact. They have the discipline and the operating culture to actually set targets and see those pursued in a serious, rigorous way. In, in other words, I they would that, say to the government, look, we'll do business here, but by the end of next year, we want to see 30 infirmaries and 40 schools. Yes, and we want to partner with you to make sure that those infirmaries and schools have actual nurses and teachers in them that are trained to an international standard. And we're going to take the risk of being visible because this is just not acceptable. This is not Saudi Arabia or Kuwait where per capita income is $20,000 a year and while the country suffers from all sorts of deficits, it is not grinding its people into poverty and exclusion the way Chad's government is. There has to be part of the world, and Chad would represent it, where the standard operating procedures are just not acceptable. Steve Cole's new book is Private Empire, ExxonMobil and American Power. Steve, great to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. We wanted to hear what ExxonMobil has to say about Steve Cole's challenge to the company to rethink its responsibility toward impoverished countries like Chad. So we called Alan Jeffers, ExxonMobil's media relations manager. We take corporate social responsibility very seriously. We invest a lot of time, effort, and money, and many of the people in the corporation who have regular day jobs producing oil and gas uh, have night jobs in, in the communities in which they work and live in. But in the case of Chad, if we just take the case of Chad, that isn't the case. I mean, things are worse off. People are, are, are worse off today than they were before ExxonMobil went in. I'm just wondering what you make of uh, Steve Cole's challenge that ExxonMobil only engage with governments like the one in Chad that are not transparent, unless the host government agrees to meet targeted goals, for example, building schools and infirmaries. I mean, would ExxonMobil actually commit itself more deeply to that kind of relationship? We absolutely support transparency and oppose corruption. If the question is, are we only going to operate in countries that, that Steve approves of, I think the answer is going to be no. The core of this book, it tells the story of, of a company that if, if your, your listeners read the book, you'll see our commitment to safety and discipline and really just doing what it is our job is to do and do that ethically and honestly and, and opposing corruption. We cannot uh, be expected to be the United Nations. We're, that would not be uh, true to our shareholders. 
there there are non-government organizations that we work with all the time who's who have that as their core function and and we support many of those organizations so tell me which countries in africa has exxon mobil ruled out doing business in i uh, i don't have any any uh, response to that question marco i, I we we uh we are uh in the business of uh, finding and and developing energy and uh you know there there are, are obviously laws that we have to abide by and we we do that and we do it in the most ethical and uh and transparent way we can let me just ask a very basic question. I mean, why is such an enormous corporation like ExxonMobil, number one on the Fortune 500? You've got so many options. Why do business in countries with corrupt governments? Whose measure of corruption? I mean, you 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 go into a country and you, you produce the resources and you, and you work with, with non-governmental organizations and governmental organizations to, uh, to have the best outcome for the, for the people of the country and for the uh, – and for the uh, surrounding area. Alan Jeffers, Media Relations Manager for ExxonMobil Corporation. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. By the way, remember the Exxon Valdez? It's not called that anymore, and it's headed for the scrap heap. That story's coming up later in the program. Quick now, what's the hometown of Venezuela's President Hugo Chavez? It's Sabaneta, the answer to our geo-quiz. Sabaneta is a small town in the state of Barinas, and its fate is closely tied to that of its most famous son. John Otis recently paid a visit. Hugo Chavez, the son of school teachers, is Venezuela's first president from a poor background. One of his childhood friends, Alfredo Aldana, leads me through the remains of a mud hut on the outskirts of Sabaneta, where Chavez spent the first years of his life. Sabaneta lies in the sparsely populated western state of Barinas. Farmers here grow tobacco and sugarcane, raise cattle, and listen to folk songs called Musica Llanera, or prairie music. Sabaneta emerged from oblivion when Chavez was elected president in 1998 and pledged to lead a socialist revolution on behalf of the poor. But he's not the only family member watching over the region. One of his brothers, Aníbal, is Sabaneta's mayor. A second brother, Adán, was elected governor of Barinas in 2008. Adán succeeded their father, Hugo de los Reyes Chávez, who was governor for eight years. The Chávez connection shows. On a Sabaneta street corner, workers build a school for disabled children. Nearby, the government is putting up an oil refinery and a sugar mill. The slum where the president grew up now features neat rows of concrete houses, paved streets and playgrounds. Aldana says Sabaneta even has a youth orchestra. I had never in my life heard the flute played live. Well, they gave my granddaughter a flute, and now she plays one. But some local residents say there's a dark side to Chavez family rule. Among the most critical are relatives of kidnapping victims. They've barged into the government's human rights office in the state capital to demand action. Barinas State has one of the highest per capita rates of homicide and kidnapping in Venezuela. 
Magdalia Soler's brother was abducted two years ago and is still missing. La casa del presidente. This is the president's home. He was born and raised here. But it seems like the people of Borinas don't matter to him. Government officials refused requests for comment. But journalists have linked many abductions to a local construction workers' union, which is a big donor to the ruling Socialist Party. But instead of investigating the union, authorities have often targeted the media. Reporters gather outside the Barinas police station to cover the arrival of radio talk show host José Luis Machín. He's been called in for questioning after revealing close ties between local officials and union members accused of kidnapping. In the past four years, local TV and radio station owners have canceled programs that criticize the government. They fear losing government ads, their main source of income. The Press and Society Institute, a media watchdog group in Caracas, says there have been more government crackdowns on journalists in Barinas than almost any other area of Venezuela. Enrique Ochoa, an opposition politician in Barinas, says the Chavez family has ruled here for so long that it's simply grown intolerant of criticism. But they have all the power. They do what they want with, uh, with Venezuela. It's his country. It's uh, a land of Chavez. But it's unclear how long this will remain the land of Chavez. The president is sick with cancer in the pelvic region and his prognosis is uncertain. During an Easter mass in Barinas, Atiri Chavez pleaded to Jesus Christ to save his life. Give me your cross, a hundred crosses, and I'll carry them. But give me life, because I still have so much to do for my people and my homeland. Don't take me away yet. If Chavez is unable to run for another six-year term in October, some analysts believe his brother, Adan, will be the ruling party candidate. But Adan lacks Hugo's charisma and would face a tough fight against opposition leader Enrique Capriles. In Chavez's old neighborhood, fans of the president, like ambulance driver Jose Alvarez, say... Hugo Chávez is irreplaceable. Before Chávez, we were like prisoners, he says. We were treated like animals, but not anymore because the Comandante has opened our eyes. For The World, I'm John Otis, Savaneta, Venezuela. We have a few seconds now for a quick update on a story we've been following. It's about Sim Sim Hamara, the Pakistani version of Sesame Street. The U.S. Agency for International Development invested $10 million to help launch the program. A local partner, the Rafi Pier Theater Workshop in Lahore, was working on the project with Sesame Workshop in the States. But according to a Pakistani newspaper, the Lahore Theater used some of the money to pay off old debts. The theater denies it, but USAID has pulled out of the project. It had been hoped that Sim Sim Hamara would offer a rare success story for tattered U.S.-Pakistani relations. Instead, it seems, it's only added to the tensions between the two nations. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media. 
providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You've probably never heard of the ship called the Oriental Nicety, but you probably do remember its former name, the Exxon Valdez. The Exxon Valdez ran aground and dumped 11 million gallons of crude oil into Alaska's Prince William Sound in 1989. Since then, the ship has been repaired, sold, and renamed more than a half dozen times. And now, finally, it's headed for the scrap heap. But still, not without controversy. Environmentalists in India have gone to court to stop the ship's dismantling there. Mark Manier is a South Asia bureau chief for the Los Angeles Times. He's been covering the last day's limbo of the former Exxon Valdez. And he says no one knows exactly where it is at the moment. The owners are a bit cagey about this. I think they have visions of uh, Greenpeace or something going out and attacking the thing. So all we know is that it's somewhere out beyond the 12-mile zone of India. It has not been allowed into the waters until the legal limbo is settled. Right. And who are the new owners? It's a group called Priya Blue. Uh, This is one of hundreds of agents around the world that basically route dead and dying ships to Along in the state of Gujarat. Right. So the oriental nicety is floating somewhere off the coast of the state of Gujarat. It sounds like there's nothing especially noteworthy about the uh, former Exxon Valdez as a vessel waiting to be dismantled. This is really a story about India's notorious shipbreaking industry. Why is the Exxon Valdez, the former Exxon Valdez, emblematic of the struggle? Well, in some ways, this um, and the the environmentalists admit as much, this ship is in no worse uh, shape than probably dozens of ships that are there at any given time. But I think probably their strategy is to use this as a spotlight on the bigger problem, which is, you know, basically the, the dying end of these ships. The environmentalists would like to see the ships completely discharged of all toxins in the rich countries before they come to a poor nation like India. But the ship owners aren't willing to do that. The whole chain is trying to get away with what it can. Uh, remind us, please, Mark, why is shipbreaking such a dirty business? Part of it is the sheer age of these ships. They have dealt with all sorts of toxins. They have uh, dirty fuel oil residue in them. There's mercury, there's arsenic. And toward the end of their life, these ships are not very well maintained oftentimes. They're sold lower and lower down the chain to people who just want to get through the next six months and will just uh, run them into the ground. Right. So shipbreaking is a really dirty business. Are, Are you saying in India there are no environmental protections? There are some environmental protections, but they're certainly not OSHA. <laughs> they were not. We're not. Uh, if you see this, it, it relies on uh, completely illiterate labor that they have very little understanding of their rights. You're talking about labor that is so hand to mouth that they just don't realize if there are problems 20 years down the line, that's a different world. I've got to earn my a day now just to get by. What's next for this tanker? Any idea of how things are going to ultimately end for the ship that we used to call the Exxon Valdez? It's actually, it's had such a bizarre, strange life. And technically, it's no longer a tanker because a few years ago, they 
converted it to an iron ore carrier, actually. Uh, but what they're looking at doing, uh, the owner, of course, isn't going to uh, give his hand away easily. But they're talking about they would move it to even uh, lower standard countries, um, Pakistan to the west and Bangladesh to the east. But that is, is sort of the, the plan B. Mark Manier is South Asia Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. He's been speaking with us from New Delhi. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. And finally, with the news out of Syria of mass killings and international inaction, it's sometimes hard to remember the elation at the start of the Arab Spring when Tunisians ejected their longtime dictator and sparked a popular movement across the Middle East and North Africa. But here's a brief reminder of the elation in the form of a song. It took hold in Tunisia just before the revolution broke out in 2010 and spread across the region. Lonnie Shavelson tells us about the song and the young woman who wrote it. Three years before Tunisia's uprising, the government censored the political songs of a young musician, Emel Mathluti. I couldn't have festivals, I couldn't have TV or radio, so it was like the biggest threat for the young musicians like me. So this is how it was obvious for me to move to France. In Paris, Mathluti could express herself. At a huge concert at the Bastille in 2008, she sang Kelmti Hora, My Word is Free. Tunisia was living inside of me in a very, very powerful way. Every time I heard about someone who is in jail in Tunisia, I was crying. And I started writing and writing. And singing in French concerts, on French TV and radio shows, and on the Internet, which Tunisian censors did not follow closely at that time. They never imagined that social medias can lead Tunisian youth so far and can give the, them courage. On Internet, you can always find a way to shout, like on the street. When Mathluti, in her late 20s, returned to Tunisia two years after she left, her concerts, announced only by Facebook, were packed. And suddenly everybody was standing, and they were singing the song by heart. So I stopped, and I was crying on the stage, and I said, wow, power is to the youth, really, and we are starting to build something. Mathluti says that after Tunisians toppled their dictator, her song, Kelmti Hora, My Word is Free, traveled from Tunisia to Egypt, to Libya and Syria. I received a lot of messages from Egyptians and Syrians saying thank you to Tunisia, of course, for the revolution there, guys, and for your song, because during our revolution we were listening to your song and it was giving us a lot of hope. Which brings us to today. Mithluti says in many ways, Tunisia's revolution has not solved the country's problems. Fifty years of dictatorship, it made like a lot of corruption. So they are taking money, but they are not doing anything. In a way, we can say that nothing changed really. And there are some new concerns. Now that democracy has ushered in Islamist leaders. The problem is religion can stop the freedom of speech, can make a big threat to civil rights, to women's rights. And with a recent government turn again towards censorship in Tunisia, Mathluti says her song, My Word is Free, 
is as important as ever. For the world, I'm Lonnie Shavelson. And Lonnie produced a terrific video of ML Mathuti talking about and performing her song, Kelmti Hora. You can find it at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. Won't you please stand up for Tunisia and the greatness of his people? Thank you. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by contributors to the PRI Program Fund, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International